looking for the best in authentic Maltese cuisine? Then you need to dine at Georgie's on Vista. Situated in the heart of Fraser Eyes, you can't go wrong when it comes to family dining. We have a menu for mum and dad, one for the kids, and one for seniors. Everyone's taken care of. Don't miss our specialty nights. Tuesday night is Palmer night, where you get to choose from not one, but five different Palmers. Wednesday night, kids eat free with every paying adult meal. Thursday night is members night, where members get the chance to win some great prizes. And Friday night, join us for happy hour between 5.30 p.m. to 7.30 p.m. Jim, Johnny, Jack and their little brother Schooner are only $5 each. Looking to get an early start Friday afternoon for a punt? Our sports bar with TAB is open from 3 p.m. Friday afternoons. To book your table, email info at georgiesonvista.com.au. Bring the family and come dine at Georgie's on Vista. 46 City Vista Court, Fraser Eyes, Plumpton. Good evening and a very, very warm welcome to you. Thank you for joining us here yet again on the Football Out West show. Tonight promises to be a massive show, a huge show. My name is Tonchi Prusak. I'm one of three co-hosts, as is the case each week. It's just impossible, impossible, I say, to actually bring in um, uh, just uh, one co-host or two co-hosts to uh, manage this type of a program. It's so uh, huge that we need three and uh, welcoming both of those co-hosts, Steve Curtin and um, Craig Filer. Gentlemen, great to have you guys on board for yet another blockbuster episode, Craig. First it is, Tonch. Good evening, gents. How are we? Great. Fantastic. Good, good. And Steve as well. How are you? Yeah, good. I'm not sure if I haven't cooled down from my run earlier. I've got a bit of a bit of touch of sunburn from being out in the nice weather today, but <laughs> definitely morale's up. Sun's out. Wind has stopped blowing like a... A hurricane and um, things are good. Oh, things are good here, and we've got a lot yeah. to talk about tonight because the football news is just breaking something every five it's minutes at the moment, massive. and we can't hardly keep up. We'll do our best. It's massive. Well, tonight, gents, we've got a big show, Craig. Um, we've got some massive guests on the show tonight. Um, let's go through them. Who we got on tonight? Yeah, well, joining us uh, first off, obviously, there's been some um, some talk this week with uh, with regards to Western United and their uh, ground allocation for the season. And uh, Western United CEO Chris uh, Palavanis is uh, is waiting on the line. He's going to come on and uh, and give us everybody a bit of an update on uh, on where they stand as a club. Obviously, there's been a, a lot of hearsay this week, um, and hopefully, Chris will be able to clear a little bit of that up for us uh, uh, this evening. And then, you know, joining us after that, around about seven thirty. Um, needs no 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 really introduction for those that are uh, are involved in football and uh, play a key part in in uh, player development we have uh, 
world-renowned development coach um, or coach of, of very young um, footballers, um, been in Japan for the best part of 30-odd years and, and oversaw uh, a big the big change in, in Japanese football in, in the structure. Mm-hmm. Um, Tom Bayer will be uh, will be joining us, and that's uh, that's sure to be a fantastic uh, listen for anybody that's uh, that's involved in in development football. Yeah, absolutely. Tom Bayer, he um, he spent more of his life. He's an American native, born in America. Um, but he spent more of his life in Japan and has travelled all over Europe, uh, Asia and, in fact, has been um, held down various roles here in Australia. So he's very, very well regarded in the coaching fraternity. Uh, gents, before we go any further, episode sponsor tonight, as always the case for the last few weeks, months, uh, Macron Victoria. Big shout out uh, to Giacomo Carulli and the crew down at Macron Victoria. And um, how can we n- um, not say anything without saying a big, big thank you to our season sponsors, um, Caroline Springs George Cross Football Club, who, Steve, during the week um, unveiled a snazzy-looking new logo. Yeah, that's right. And I'm not going to just say it looks good just for 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 the reasons to be nice. It you know objectively looks very good. Love this logo. Um, well done to everyone involved. We'll try and get it on the screen perhaps, shall we? There, we, there go. we go. Nice circular outline there. Nice symmetrical look. And some, yeah, traditional Maltese imagery in the middle as well. I'm sure someone from the club can explain a little bit more about the uh, the symbology in the middle there. But, geez, it looks fantastic. Very well-balanced yeah, piece of yeah. graphic design, that. And the big thing about this uh, this um, one, Craig, is that it also has the, um, um, the, the date or the year it was founded, 1947. Um, so it's paying homage to its past, to, to its present and indeed uh, the future. Yeah, looks uh, look as Steve said, it looks uh, very well balanced, very well put together. It's uh, the, the old emblem just stuck with the George Cross was a little bit um, bland, should we say, but I think that one looks, uh, looks fantastic. So uh, well done to everybody. Well done to everyone at George Cross, and uh, we hope to have George Cross on either next week or the week after um, as the featured club um, towards the end. Now, last week, gents, was a massive show, huge, huge show. Um, it was, you know, the, the ratings went through the roof. It was just awesome. Um, this week promises to be as big a show, so let's get straight into it. Um, now, during the during a week, or in fact, a couple of days ago, Western United came out with um, a, a press release um, stating, um, and we've got it there in front of us, that they are adding Lakeside Stadium to its home ground roster. Steve, a little bit more news about that. Yeah, well, taken a little bit by surprise on Thursday morning when this announcement was made that, uh, yeah, Amy Park was off the agenda for Western United and Melbourne Victory and uh, Melbourne City weren't so keen on Western United playing the games there. And a uh, good alternative had been found. Something we hadn't, well, I personally, I hadn't heard discussed before was the prospect of playing uh, a bulk of games at, at Lakeside Stadium in, in a fantastic spot there by the lake, beautiful city skyline. I think it is the most picturesque stadium in yeah. Victoria, probably. And uh, yeah, so, and a nice rectangular stadium. It does have the athletics track, obviously, but um, we can get around that. Like we still had pretty good atmospheres back at the old Olympic Park back in the day with the athletics track. So a good, you know, football specific venue for uh, the short term. And obviously they announced earlier in the week as well that they're going to turn soil at the new stadium site next month as well. So um, at least for the interim, they do need somewhere for this season and next season. So it looked like a very, very good solution at the time when it was announced, didn't it, for seven games? It did, but then controversy reared its head when South Melbourne, the current tenants at Lakeside Stadium, issued their own press release 
rejecting the plans of Western United. Um, and there it is. Uh, that is the official press release um, that was obtained from South Melbourne's website. Um, Craig, um, yeah, look, there's, you know, uh, South Melbourne have gone all guns blazing and saying they're, they're against it. They, they don't agree with it. And there's a comment there, I think, in the bottom paragraph, which says South Melbourne considers Western United to be a direct competitor in the Melbourne, Victorian and Australian football market. But not only is the um, um, the um, opposition, I guess, from South Melbourne, but a lot of Western United fans are not happy. They don't want Western United to be playing games either at Amy Stadium or at Lakeside Stadium. They they want the club to stay true to its, um, its um, vision statement, I guess, of being a club for the Western suburbs. Yes, Donch, but... Um... <laughs> There isn't a rectangular stadium in the West. Um, so, you know, with the exception of, um, you know, I suppose uh, Melbourne Knights, um, there isn't really anything that's that's able to 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 be able to play those type, uh, types of games. And even email Melbourne Knights um, put in a statement out, didn't they, about, you know, their facility to their members this week. But, um, yeah, look, I'm, there's, a, there's certainly a lot going on. Uh, but I think, you know, it will be sorted one way off or another. And I think it's probably a good time uh, that we brought on the CEO of Western United, Chris Pelavanis, uh, to come on and, and fill everybody in on exactly what's happened this week and, and where the club stand in terms of the um, the ground. Um, Chris, are you with us? Good evening, Jensen. Thanks for having me once again on your show. Good evening, Chris. Um, always a pleasure to have you. We haven't had you on for a long, long time, not probably since... Um, uh, last year, but it's uh, it's great to have you on board. And uh, mate, it's 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 an interesting week. Even here in, in Victoria, in, in Melbourne, even when there's no football, there seems to be a lot of uh, football news happening. Um, and and that's certainly the case with the um, release of the fixtures this week. But also, um, I, I guess some would say contentious, and some would say not so contentious. Issue of Western United's home home stadium. Let's look at the positives. The turning of the sod. Now, some reports say it's um, it's just the le roads leading up to where the stadium is going to be. Others are saying it's the whole precinct. What exactly is happening with regards to Western United's home ground? Yeah, so it was a great announcement. I mean, you can never make everyone happy. It's an interesting one. The project's uh -huh. got to start. You can't just go in the middle of the, of the paddocks and, and start building a stadium, I think. People don't really understand what's involved in such a big project and how big this project's going to be. And everyone's quite emotional about the stadium, but it's bigger than just the stadium. It's a, it's a suburb. So um, it's a staggered project, and it's a project that um, will commence, as we said, uh, next month, um, albeit <laughs> when we had those plans to start next month. Uh, all the uh, all our tradies are on strike at the moment, so let's hope that doesn't continue. But the plans are still... Um, to continue, everything was set to go. Um, and yeah, it is, it is commencing with the roads because you need to have services to side and have all that ready. And then, and then every other stage can continuously progress from there. And, and, you know, the club or the group, Western Melbourne group will be, um, releasing the timelines, um, subject to obviously turning soil next month. So, I mean, Great. for everyone, I think it's pretty, pretty exciting. Steve. Okay. Um, all right. Well, we'll jump into the Lakeside Stadium news this week as well, Chris. Um, uh, now, how long has that been on the agenda for? It was something that I hadn't heard uh, talked about previously until the announcement came out on Thursday. Has the club previously looked at playing games there in the past last season or is it something that's just come up uh, recently? 
Yeah, it's probably a good chance to give everyone a bit of a journey of what's happened and, and why Lakeside's come up and, and, and the journey that we've been on. I guess, um, you know, I think probably why I got on the call tonight is just to clarify for the Western United family and their friends and the Victorian football community the journey Western United's been on and why the decisions that were made were made. Um, you know, I understand emotions. Usually emotions are typically left on the field, but I, uh, I can see that there's some, clearly some emotions off the field at the moment, and that wasn't our intention. But, look, I think it's, it's good that we give everyone some context. Um, I think the point I want to highlight here before I get into the detail is I think if you step back a little bit and take a helicopter view here, our game has significant issues, and, and a significant issue is we don't have venues or infrastructure capable for A-league or elite football um, sufficient to what our game needs. So I think the football community, Western United, um, all the clubs in, in, in Melbourne and all the clubs in the state, doesn't matter what level, we need to work together to, to grow that pipe and work together to ensure that we leave benefits and we leave a legacy behind. So I just want to make that clear to everyone that, you know, this isn't uh, just a Western United issue. I think it's an issue around around the game. So, you know, and I'll take you through why this is an issue and I think you'll give yourselves a bit more clarity um, as I go through. So in year one, when we entered the competition, the season window, um, if everyone recalls, was earlier. We, we commenced um, in late October. Um, and that was the typical A-League season, which commenced in late October, early November. And we had an opportunity to play a lot of our games in Geelong early on. I don't know if you remember in season one, but we had, I think, five or six games pre-Christmas because that was the window we had available for us at Geelong. Yeah, absolutely. We also played some games in Ballarat. And, and this is all pre-COVID, so we're all going to consider that as well. Um, and we played a game at Widden Oval as well because at that time we could play a game at Widden Oval. Um, What's happened in Geelong subsequent to us, if we go, if we move back to now go into season two, in season two, the window was pushed back in season three. So we're starting at the end of November now. But I think in season one, sorry, in season two, if I correct me if I'm not, I think we started on the eve of the New Year's or Christmas. Uh, and we and so then our window to play games in Geelong was shorter. And I'll tell you why it's shorter, because um, there's a lease in Geelong at Cardinia Park that is obviously the Geelong Cats home ground, there's AFLW and there's also cricket have priority all ahead of Western United. So we have a short window. So going into season three, we could only play two games uh, in the window provided coming into this season. We have, if I step back to season two, we also moved two games to Tasmania. The reason we moved two games to Tasmania was because we didn't have a suitable venue in Victoria. In season two, Amy Park, to their credit, um, at that point, could accommodate for us the five games, and they did. Uh, and then, if you remember, we finished the season off in a hub, and we played some games in Ballarat. So, if that gives you context, so leading into season three, uh, the season that we're approaching, um, the club's preference was clearly to to see if we can play at Amy Park. You know, what happened at Amy Park, though, was which we weren't aware of. Um, we put our submission in there to play up to nine games at Amy Park or seven games, depending on whatever mix we could do, because we were still, you know, we were still considering obviously wanting to go back to Ballarat and Geelong and we still had, a, a, you know, obligations to Tasmania. So, um, unfortunately, we couldn't come into an agreement with Amy Park because 
at, unbeknownst to us at that point as well, Melbourne Victory moved five fixtures from Marvel to Amy Park as well. Um, and Amy Park is also the home ground for the Storm and also the home ground for the Rebels, which all have preference over Western United because they were all tenants and Melbourne City. They're all tenants of that ground before we were. So at that point, um, we investigated um, alternative options. So some of the options that we've, we've identified, and I think it's good for people to know this, we've looked at Turnside Parking where it is. Um, we've looked at the showground. We've looked at Witten Oval. Um, all of them, unfortunately, for some reason, not, A, do not essentially meet um, A-leg standards. But the other thing we're all going to consider, we're in a COVID environment, which means no one's got a crystal ball, but which means there is the odd occasion where we might be playing in front of 25% capacity or 50% capacity. Churnside Oval's got 500 seats as it currently stands. It also has a cricket tenant there. We can't just pick them up and move them. Um, you know, the showground, you know, it's not fit for purpose as it currently stands and would need considerable investment. With an oval, um, it's the home of the Western Bulldogs. And again, they have AFLW. They have their own things. They're going to go through a refurb. Again, we couldn't play there. Then, so, so then... We obviously spoke to the state government about this issue. Um, we also approached Melbourne Knights at the, that time. I know they made a release. I was a little bit confused by the release they made because we did meet with the Knights. We did discuss their stadium in depth. We um, obviously highlighted to their executives and their and their um, officials there some of the issues with that ground from the A-League perspective. For example, I don't want to go to too many issues, but obviously everyone that's been there, you know, you need minimum a thousand lucks at your life. Um, you need an electronic scoreboard, things like that, you know, which we highlighted. Um, and at that point, we advised them that we'd obviously notify the government and to see if we can all work together to potentially um, work together to upgrade. And this was, you know, four to five weeks ago. Um, that discussion happened. And then, but when that discussion happened, we all were also aware that we weren't going to get Knight Stadium up and ready to go for this season to have fixtures in. November and December. So at that point, um, there wasn't many options left. And, and the state trust, which is obviously, um, uh, you know, the, the governing body of Lakeside, um, you know, in discussion with the government, we approached Lakeside, uh, sorry, the trust, and obviously went through due diligence with them. And we went through, you know, what would be required from an LA League perspective to um, see if that ground is suitable. That ground was kicked off on Tuesday um, afternoon, um, but however, would still require um, some repairs and additional lighting to get it up to a thousand lux, and um, some for broadcast first and additional Wi-Fi. So, just some things that we had to work with. But we have got that kicked off um, on Tuesday. On Wednesday, we um, uh, obviously we're in discussion with the trust, agreed commercially and worked out on which dates are available because to do a fixture, you obviously need to work with the trust to identify, you know, which days are available for the for the usage of the ground. Um, and so, and then it's not just South Melbourne that attended there. There's obviously um, the VIS, Athletic Victoria. So we've got to work throughout all their, all their scheduling. We did that. We obviously did approach South Melbourne on Wednesday afternoon, telling them that obviously... We were looking at this as a realistic opportunity, and that um, we're, you know, we were sort of we went through the same discussion that I've just gone through, um, took them through that we had no other options, and that the um, 
um, with discussions with the states born of trust that we would um, be announcing tomorrow that in the fixture release from the APL and our release that um, we would be scheduling up to seven games at Lakeside. So we did all that. Um, we obviously made our announcement. Um, we obviously told South Melbourne. Um, uh, I met with their president, Nick Mayfusis. Um, we obviously advised him of those discussions and our journey. Um, he told us he understood, he'd take it away. And then the next day, we obviously made our announcement. The State Center Trust also sent a tweet out um, welcoming us to the stadium and excited to host seven games. And then um, we were all you know, taken a little bit aback by the press release sent by South Melbourne, um, um, which, to be fair to them, um, I don't know what's in their lease agreement with the trust. Um, the trust are the, you know, the landlord or if you so-called, or the governing body of that thing, we've been in discussions with them. If South Melbourne has something in that lease, then of course we'll have to abide by that. You know, that's not <laughs> our, our doing. Um, but ultimately, you know, our discussions with, with the trust, and we're not privy to what's in, you know, what South Melbourne's arrangements or anyone else's arrangements for background, including the VIS and, and whoever the other tenants there are. Yeah. So, but Chris, just, just to cut you... Yeah, just to cut you off there, we've got the um, the South Melbourne um, press release there on screen, um, and it's saying um, you know licensing arrangements with Lakeside Stadium and the state government shows it will remain um, the home of uh, South Melbourne FC. Um, I find it a bit interesting that, for example, that not not all the details would have been nutted out because, say, for example, if 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 um, the Lakeside Trust, okay, they're the ones that manage the stadium, but. No doubt South Melbourne, and like you, I'm not privy to what their agreement is, but if you're going down the path of making an agreement, wouldn't, wouldn't all, all parties come to the table and say, this is what you can and this is what you can't use? For example, their social club. Dare I say they would have to have some sort of a, a watertight agreement there that it can't just be given to anyone on match day or whatever the case may be. They'd have to manage it themselves. So, um, you know, how, how, how detailed has the agreement been with the Lakeside um, trust, or is it at the moment just sort of kind of a yeah pending type of a thing? Yeah, yeah, no, sorry. We went through the facility, so there are some aspects of the facility that we wouldn't get access to, for example, their social club, but um, on match day, but we didn't require that to deliver and you know a game. Um, if, if, if at later time we could reach a commercial agreement with South Melbourne and they wanted to operate it and work for all parties, we'd obviously consider that, but. Um, it's very difficult for me to say because whenever you do a, an agreement like this, you, you work with the people that are in control with the, the stadium. And I'm not privy to what relationship South Melbourne has or, or to that extent, any of the other tenants there. So um, I just work with the people and we work through the arrangements. And my team, we work through the arrangements that were there. Now, South Melbourne's clearly put a, you know, their statement out so. Uh, we'll work with government now, you know. Um, they've been very supportive of us. The trust has been very supportive of us. Uh, we have a great relationship with them. And, and, and it's important that, um, you know, we work through this issue. And because we're not privy to what's in any of the agreements. And look, at this stage, we're still planning to play at Lakeside because we haven't heard anything contrary to that. If 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 things uh, if things uh, don't work out, we'll have to find a certain, another alternative. But... Um, I just wanted to clear up why we ended up to Lakeside to our fans and to everyone in the football community because it is a journey and it's not just, you know, as I said and I started this conversation, we don't have enough football infrastructure in this state to sort of elite football. 
and, and um, you know that's why we're working on it, and that's why we're embarking the project we're embarking. Just a very quick one from me, Chris. Um, surely the trust they they came out with their tweet, didn't they? I'm just trying to find it. I can't uh, I can't yeah. locate it, but they came up with their tweet saying that uh, Western United would be playing games. Surely they would have done their due diligence before announcing their tweet, wouldn't they? Well, I can't talk for any of them other than to say that, you know, you'd hope so, but in, on the flip side, you know, we're all human too. There could be an error or on the flip side, maybe they have done the DD and, and we'll work through that in due course and, and maybe we can play there. So I think that's all going to be, you know, we'll work through that. But from a Western United perspective, um, we approach the landlord, we work through them to find fixtures. It's not like you can just announce a fixture and without consulting anyone, you know. Mm. So we went through a process and it was quick, yeah, to be fair to everyone. It was a very quick process. It, it was look, took about a week because um, we looked at all these other grounds and we didn't even consider Lakeside at the time. And and, and now that we have, um, look, that's why, that's why we're in the position we're in. And look, another thing we've got to consider as well is from our club and players' perspective and everyone, you know, we're trying to build a club. Uh, it's been two years of a pandemic. We need to find a home or, or a place where our fans and players can, you know, we can have a competitive advantage when we play opposition. So that's something we're keen to establish as well. And look, it's challenging, yeah, but um, it's, it's something we want to do. And, and I hear a lot of people saying you're a club for the West and you're not playing in the West. That's our goal. We are going to play in the West and that's why we're building our stadium. But I will say there is also, you know, in our state, there's not many assets, even in the AFL. You know, the Western Bulldogs, they are fantastic clubs in the West. They represent the West, but they also play at Marvel. <laughs> That's where the suitable venues are. So I just want to be clear to everyone, you know, just because, you know, we will always represent the West. Um, we will always, um, no matter where we play, um, you know, we just need everyone to stick behind us. You know, we need all our fans to be resilient. And this is a journey, and and they need to be on the journey with us because, um, you know, it doesn't really matter where you play. You've got to support your team. And, and ultimately, you know, we have that vision, and that vision will be delivered. And, Chris, just on an altogether different note, um, the club's just announced a new signing who's arrived to replace, uh, I guess, uh, Victor Sanchez. Did you want to talk a bit more about that while we're at it? Yeah, that's great. I'd love to talk about it. Yeah, we've obviously just uh, announced the signing of Rene Cream. Um, he's obviously a replacement for Victor, um, 31-year-old from Slovenia, played 48 caps for his country, played in, you know, he's been lucky enough to play in three of the top competitions around the world in terms of Serie A, La Liga and, and the French top division. So he comes here with a wealth of experience and, you know, 31-year-old's great age for us and, and someone who can enter our midfield and, and really add another piece to our puzzle um, as, as we continue to build for the upcoming season and round one. I mean, a little bit of being overshadowed about all these events, but round one is a massive game uh, against Melbourne Victory. You know, um, two teams that are going to be looking to have really strong seasons in the upcoming year. And and I think it's uh, it's important that, um, you know, hopefully we can get as many fans as we can and, and you know, It'll be great because I think also it kicks off a new broadcast deal with Channel 10. There's so many exciting things happening in the game and, and you know, I think from where we're heading, it's going to be a really positive season. Obviously, none of us have got a crystal ball with what it means with COVID and, and the pandemic. We're still obviously dealing with that, but um, couldn't be more excited where we're United at this, at this point in time. 
Okay, Chris, on that note, thank you very much for joining us. And particularly last minute, um, uh, folks, you, um, everyone at home, understand Chris agreed to come on pretty much at the uh, 11th hour. So we really do appreciate you taking time out uh, to, to clarify a little bit about that. And, um, yeah, look, look, as we said, a lot's happening. As, as Steve mentioned, just as we were talking, there's, a, there's an announcement about a new player um coming uh, being signed so a lot is happening and i'm sure a lot more will be happening from um from now until the start of the new a-league season chris thank you very much for joining us and uh um get back to that swimming pool in the backyard um saw that on social media looks very good <laughs> yeah, no, thank you thank you for that guys and and happy to be on any time and and happy to clarify things in the future and really looking forward to round one and Hopefully we can do some exciting things together as we reach the round one. I just also give, I know I heard George Cross, just my final thing, a big shout out to George Cross too, because um, obviously we've been uh, co-sharing with George Cross for our first few years and, and it's been a wonderful relationship and uh, a relationship that, you know, uh, shows that, um, you know, for the better of the football in the community, you know, you can work together and grow and, and both clubs, I think, have prospered under the agreement. Perfect. All right, Chris. Well, listen, thanks very much. Um, best of luck over the next couple of weeks. Hopefully get get it sorted and uh, we look forward to uh, to seeing where this uh, where this goes over the next uh, couple of weeks, as I say. No problem. Thanks oh, a lot. Thanks, thanks, Chris. Thanks, Chris. Uh, that was Chris Palavanis, Western United CEO, <clears throat> uh, joining us very, very quickly. Um, you know, he, he, he um, gave us a little bit of an insight as to the club's predicament with regards to a home venue this year. Uh, Jens, any any last comments? Craig, firstly, you. Where'd you start? Either way, let's let's face it. Did you really clarify much? I don't know. (laughs) Look, I I think it's look. It's, it's a mess, isn't it, you know, um, for the club to come out and, and make an announcement. Then for South Melbourne, within half an hour of that announcement, coming out and saying, no, they're not. Um, but the uh, the trust coming out and saying, well, they are playing here. It's, yeah, it's 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 a little bit um, little bit concerning for the club, I suppose. Um, needs to be resolved. Um, and I suppose what it does, Tonch, it highlights the fact that the infrastructure for the sport is shocking in this country. Absolutely. You know, that, when that's, we that's talk of point. AFL, basketball, yeah. Yeah. there's not an there's not a rectangular stadium in the whole no. of in the whole of the West, with the exception yeah. of I suppose you, you talk about Melbourne Knights. Yeah. Um you've got Ballarat, yeah. I suppose. Yeah. And including Geelong as well. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And and they're not suitable for A League yeah. games, even though they're fantastic they're facilities. Yeah. And that's the concern for me is you know that there's there isn't the infrastructure in place to be able to support the world game, and you know we'll touch on it with our next guest. But I just I I, I don't get it. I don't get it. I just yeah. don't understand why the government can't put more emphasise emphasise on football. Um, but here's the thing, guys, game. and let's let's put this into perspective. <clears throat> um, it's not going to be a temporary problem. It's going to be a long lasting problem. He talked about he, and, the issue. The bigger issue knows, here. Sorry, Tons, the bigger issue here, and I'm sorry to interrupt you there, and we spoke about it many times on this show about, you know, especially with Mark Sultana and Zach coming yeah. on the other week talking about f- football clubs getting together and having discussions. Uh-huh. Yeah. That doesn't yeah. happen. No, it doesn't. You've got no, AFL. All the, you've got AFL. And you never hear any issues with Bulldogs or Melbourne or North Melbourne or Geelong Cats or whoever it is playing at, at Amy Stadium or MCG. Yeah. They sort it out. Mm. But for mm. some reason with football, 
it's like clubs protect their own speak their own their own yeah. family and i get it but we've got to be a little bit more open to to things happen because we're never going to grow yeah. you know we'll, again you talk about our next guest and coaching if we don't develop and if we don't if we're not open to new ideas then the game's never going to go anywhere we can moan no, about not. it in 20 years time and say oh remember the 2006 um super tight side that australia had it's just nonsense sorry i'm just gone just, off on my yeah no that's all right steve we know down at geelong we know down at geelong cadinia park or gm hba stadium is supposed to now get a a stage five renovation stage five and that's about 140 million dollars if i'm not mistaken the bulk of it being financed by the state government something by the geelong cats something by the local council but the bulk by the state government now that's stage five now mm. 140 million dollars um, if we're talking about a club in the Western uh, Western suburbs like Western United that at the moment doesn't have a proper home ground. And as, as Craig mentioned, we've got all of these facilities that are just, you know, whether it's Ballarat, whether it's Geelong, whether it's um, Knight Stadium, whatever the case may be, it's just inadequate. $140 million for a fifth stage, wouldn't you think a fraction of that to improve, whether it's George's, whether it's Knight Stadium, whether it's some other um, a ground, to bring it up to A-League standard would be like a drop in the ocean compared to what funding is being given to some of these AFL clubs. Yeah, mind well, you, we're I, both AFL yeah well, that's it, mate. For, for, for you and me here in Geelong, it, it, it hurts. Like, I love going to GMHBA Stadium. I don't mind going to the footy. It's great, but it's not equitable, is it? It's not fair. Mm. Where's the money for football? Where's the money for the sports that need to play in a rectangular stadium? And it's not only the fact that it's not, you know, suitable for the atmosphere of a, of a football match uh, to play on an oval. It's just like um, Chris has said, it's, it's not available. It's not available anymore. It's only there for a few months in mm -hmm. October, November and December. And then the AFLW season will begin. That goes into the AFL season. So it's not even available. So it's sort of like yeah. this whole thing like, oh, this, this stadium is, you know, a multi-purpose stadium. It's got investment and we can put soccer on it. We can put rugby on it, whatever. It's not even available. We can't even use it anyway. So... Um, the fact that we still don't have our facility in Geelong and we spoke with Roy, Hey, you know, last Monday night and he talked yeah. about clubs in Geelong wanting to get together what, two decades ago or three decades ago in and have a 1980s, national league, 1980s, a, there was a, a national league team here. Yeah. And if we could have, if that had have got off the ground, we would have yeah. something to, to use yeah. in that capacity now. And it might even be in a central city location. I've gone off topic, but. Yeah, that's it. No, there's another great comment that came up on the, and I'm just trying to find it here, but, you know, we talk about national second division and promotion and relegation. It's never going to happen, guys, because if, yeah. if, if with the greatest respect to the Knight Stadium, and I love going to the Knight Stadium, I think it's a fantastic football stadium. Yeah. Um, but how are they going to get promoted even if they get into the, the, the national second division? How are they going to get promoted if the infrastructure is mm. not right, if the lights are not right, if everything else? Surely the state government need to be pumping some money into that. And I've seen some comments about Western United should be putting some money into that. The state government should be putting money into that to make that Absolutely. into a, and that's a, a viable, yeah. feasible stadium to and be able to play football at the highest level. Yeah, and that's this, my, this teams, my point. Teams, you would have seen it on, on football. Sorry, mate. Yeah, oh, we're going to go off on, on, on a tangent. Yeah, here, so I know we are. Apologize. We are. You, you look on the um, EFL. I was watching EFL on Kyle the other week, and Wimbledon gone back mm -hmm. to their native home in in southeast mm -hmm. London with a. I think they've got a seven thousand all seater stadium. It's bloody fantastic, mm -hmm. absolutely mm -hmm. fantastic. Mm -hmm. How mm -hmm. difficult can it be 
to do that. Now, I know Western United are going to start that project, but surely the state government have to start looking at the infrastructure to be able to play top. The World Cup's coming here in, the Women's World Cup is coming in year three, in three years' time. Yeah. No disrespect, where are they going to train? Stead Park? Elko Park? <laughs> it's embarrassing. Uh, but, but this is the thing, Craig. My point is that, uh, you know, Chris Palavanas actually mentioned this, and he actually said, you know, before you build the stadium, you've got to build the roads leading up there. It's a suburb that's being built. So stage one, we talk about five stages mm. at the GMHBA Stadium, is building the roads, the infrastructure to get to where the stadium is going to be. It's three years, year three now of Western United being in existence. They won't set foot in their own stadium and play a game until year six. So they there's knew another that. They knew that, yeah. they knew they that. They did, but they've had three years now to sort this out and they need to. And the rest of the football fraternity, including Football Victoria, needs to start upping the ante. One million here, two million there in the World Game Fund is just not enough. It's just not enough. State government needs to pull the finger out. Shall we leave it at that, guys, and move oh, on? Otherwise, get... we won't get to our main guest. Yeah, well, I, I think it's all it's all levels of government, mate. It's not just state. It's local government. It's federal government. We need to do a little bit better and make sure that we've got something set up so that we can actually run. And Excellent. then we will have national second division. It's going to be yeah. the best thing that ever happened. We're going to have promotion and relegation. We're going to have a fully connected football pyramid. We're going to have all these things. And it's going to be like our Christmases have all come at once. But we'll have to wait a little while to get there. Absolutely. All right, guys, we're going to take a break. When we return, we've got our big, big international guest all the way from Japan, um, world-renowned football development coach, uh, Tom Breyer. He's going to be joining us very shortly. Don't go away. You do not want to miss this. Sport requires effort, sweat and strong will, and Macron knows it. A leading global company with Italian DNA in the production and sale of sportswear, when Macron first entered the sports world in 1971, it was a small yet strong player. Since then, Macron has been growing at a very fast pace, supporting teams, sportsmen and women at all levels, working hard to supply them with the best technical products to help improve their performances. With over 4 million pieces of stock available in our Italian warehouse and an extensive range of on-field, off-field and free time products, we cater for everyone from amateurs to professional sporting organisations, even referees. Ranked third most prominent football brand by the UEFA, Macron keeps expanding its presence worldwide, including Australia, where we are currently proud partners of Perth Glory, MacArthur FC, Port Adelaide and Parramatta Eels and more to come. Work hard, play harder, Macron, your next team wear partner. For more information, visit our website at www.macronvic.com.au or call us on 1-800-MACRON. Welcome back to the Football Out West show. And indeed, if you are looking for a kit supplier for next season, do not go past Macron Victoria. Uh, Giacomo Caruli and the boys there at their uh, Ligon Street-based um, headquarters, they will look after you. And, uh, gents, I'll tell you what, more and more of watching Serie A um, and, and indeed Australian football, Melbourne Victory, Perth Glory, etc., etc., more and more clubs are actually being kitted out by Macron. I'll tell you what, it's uh, oh, top, quality, everywhere. top quality gear, isn't it? All the top leagues, FFA Cup, you name it. It's, every, it's always right. on your screen. You can't get away from yeah. it. 
<laughs> and another thing that we don't want to get away from is, is our next guest. This this man needs no introductions, as as Craig said at the top of the show. He's um, he's lived his majority of his adult life in Japan, but he does hail from the United States, and he's a football development coach and an internationally renowned one at that. Um, it is an absolute pleasure to introduce to you Tom Beyer, all the way from, um, from, from Japan. Tom, absolute pleasure having you on the show. Welcome to the Football Outwear Show. Well, hello, gentlemen. It's uh, good to be here from my home in uh, Tokyo. Good evening, Tom, and thanks for, thanks for joining us. Really looking forward to uh, a really good insight into, uh, into your journey as a, as a coach. Um, from uh, from your early days to to where you are now, I, I'm, something I will say to you is, uh, as Tom was saying to us earlier on today, that uh, he's 61 years old and he certainly doesn't look 61. I've had, a I've had a tough take around me. I must have. So, um, um, so look, we, if I look good what's like the secret, that at 51? Tom? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what's the secret? Yeah, absolutely. Maybe, it might be the uh, the Asian Japanese lifestyle. Maybe it's uh, the, the the fresh fish and the sushi and the. I mean, Japan's a great place. I've been living here for 35. I think I'm going on 36 years. Um, and I just found my, it's really my first home now, more than even the United States is. But uh, if anybody who's ever visited here, they know, because it's pretty easy to fall in love with uh, with this place. Very good. Gosh, now, um, who wants to go? Who's going first? Do you want me to go first? Uh, well, yeah, Tom, <laughs> look, um, tell us a little bit about your footballing journey, I guess, starting from the early days. Now um, I'm, I've got I've got a little thing here that you started your your soccer career or football career um, at high school where you were named um, Mid Hudson Player of the Year. Now is that like a regional area or is that sort of like a? a, a and tell like us a New bit York. more about. It sounds it. like New York City to me. Yeah, yeah. Well, actually, so I was born in the Bronx in New York City, and my dad was in law enforcement and got um, appointed as a police chief in upstate New York. So uh, I lived and played uh, up in upstate New York, which is about an hour and a half, two hours north of New York City. Um, back in the day, I mean, you know, th this is when the North American Soccer League with Pele, with Johan Cruyff, with George Best, Eusebio, I mean, some of the all-time greats had just started to come to America. This was during the 1970s boom, so to kind of date myself. Um, so I was very fortunate because we had the New York Cosmos there um, and Pele. So that had a massive influence uh, for me, uh, for my love of the game. Um, so, yeah, I, I played in upstate New York, and then I went to a community college in my area as well, which is actually a national perennial powerhouse back in the day. They were national champions. Um, and then I took a year off from junior college, and I spent a year in England, and I played in what was used to call the Ipswich Suffolk League with a team called Lyston FC. Um, and then I came back to the States and then I went to the University of South Florida and I had a scholarship played there. And then the short version is, I mean, I wound up here in Japan years ago um, and I was the first uh, foreigner to play for Hitachi Football Club, which is one of the founding members of the J-League in 1993, uh, Kashiwa Reysol. So mm -hmm. I always joke around and say that I was one of the, I was the first foreigner to play for Hitachi. But then the second or third foreigner was uh, Kareka. Uh, so, and, and trust me, there's a big gap between my level and, and Kareka's level. And then it was really, I fell in love with Japan and uh, wound up staying here and then quickly got into uh, development. And you got into coaching at a young age as well, Tom, after you finished playing. I, I did, you know, it, that's a very good question. I, I grew up in upstate New York and 
Of course, we had a lot of foreign immigrants, Europeans, South Americans that had a huge impact on me and influence, especially because of the New York City area. Mm-hmm. Um, and even the, the coaches that I had were all foreign, foreign or, or expats from Europe. So I really did take a love of coaching when I was in high school. I worked at some football or soccer camps in the summertime. And I was around a lot of English guys, a lot of, you know, Hungarians, Greeks, Italians. And I, I, I loved the fraternity more than even the coaching part. I mean, it was just such a fun, incredible atmosphere and environment to be in. And really my first experience to be, you know, working and sleeping and playing around uh, with, with, with people from different parts of the world. So it was really intriguing for me. And I think that's what lured me to it as well. Um, but then, of course, I just got into, I really loved the whole concept of, of coaching and teaching, especially young players. And let's, uh, right. let's jump straight into in, into that and the, the football football starts at home philosophy that um, uh, you've devised, obviously. Tell us a little bit more about that and then we can uh, we can sort of ask some questions related to that. But just give us give our listeners a bit of an insight into what that football at home uh, uh, is, is, is all about. Sure. Probably before delving into that, just to let everybody know that I, I've really been most of my career as a technical coach a technical coach, a disciple of the Will Curved methodology. Um, so my approach is very, very technical. So it wasn't until 2006, this is the, 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 the genesis of Football Starts at Home, I was doing an event here in Japan. Um, and after the event, we were giving away these little tiny balls, like replica balls of the World Cup. And I was signing them and I was giving them away to kids. And literally the proverbial ball or apple fell right in my lap. Because while I was holding the ball and signing the balls, the light bulb went off in my head because my first son had just started walking. So I thought, small ball, my, my boy's small foot, small body. So I literally turned to the guys that were the sponsor of the balls, and I said, hey, send me a few of these balls to my home. So much of my behest, a huge box of balls arrived at my house, about 15, 20 balls. So I took, took these little balls, and I put them in every room of my house. And because of my technical background, I discouraged kicking and I encouraged more of this ball mastery, playing with the ball. And then things just started to take off. It was like autopilot. I started to see, and there's my boys at one, one years old. I started to see how much interest he had in the ball. I started to see things that he could do after I would model them with him. And the iPhones had just started to come out. So I, I, I documented the development of my, of my first boy. But then I became incredibly obsessed about development. And I I asked myself this one question, why out of 211 member association members in FIFA, only eight on the men's side have won a World Cup tournament? Uruguay, Argentina, Brazil, Germany, Spain, Italy, France, and England. So I started studying those countries, trying to see what this common denominator was. And I thought, well, do they have better coaches? Are they better educated? Do they have better curriculums, better elite player pathways, better facilities? And I really came to none of the above. I figured out that these countries, uh, their culture of development was far more advanced than everybody else because kids were coming in contact with the ball from a much, much earlier age in a very unstructured, unorganized environment. And the role that parents played, and in particular fathers. And I started to see this, and I started studying individual players. From decades ago, today, that would be Messi, Ronaldo, Suarez, Iniesta, Neymar, Pogba, Cruz, Lewandowski, all these players. 
and I found two common denominators. They all started playing in around the home between the ages of two and five and the roles that the fathers had, had played and moms sometimes as well. But then that really started to connect with me. And then I started studying national curriculums and I started studying lots. And I really put the developmental process under a microscope. And I started realizing that the entry level, the entry level to our sport, when I say entry level, six years of age, usually before you join an organized team, mm -hmm. the, the best countries in the world, they win the battle at the entry level. The rest of the world believes the battle's at the elite level and they're throwing millions and millions of dollars mm -hmm. at the elite mm -hmm. level thinking they're going to close that gap. And they mm -hmm. very rarely do. So my whole philosophy now is, and I've worked at every level, I've been blessed, I've worked at every level you can imagine. Um, at the entry level, you've got the competitive level. That's when a kid crosses over the line into organized play. And then you have the elite level. Well, I've got experience at all those. And I can tell you now and I'm willing to, to die on that hill battling it, is that the entry level is by far the most important phase of development for football development. There's no doubt about it. And if you get Tom, that right, it, yeah. that's, that, there's a lot of things in a positive way that manifest. Now, that's an interesting point that you make about that entry level. And, and you come from a country, United States, um, we're, we're obviously from Australia, and now you're based in Japan. And, and sort of the common denominator there is that football, our football, isn't the main sport in each of those countries. So obviously, obviously, at that entry level, kids are going to, and because of their parents, they're going to have a lot of other, um, uh, let's call them distractions. Uh, how important is that? Uh, or how, how have you found that to be so different to, say, those three countries as opposed to those traditional powerhouses that you did mention who have won the World Cup? Yeah, I mean, if you look at, of course, America is a multi-sport country. Um, mm -hmm. Soccer is picking up. I mean, when I was back in the dark ages when the NASL, North American Soccer League, was going on, I mean, the jump that's 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 happened in the last several decades is, is mind-blowing because it really is extremely popular, both at a participation sport uh, level and also at the commercial side as well. But I think it's given me insight. There's no doubt about it. Being from America, seeing multi-sport, being here in Japan, but here in Japan, we have two major sports. It's basically baseball and, and soccer or football here. And football's mm -hmm. massive here. I mean, it's huge, especially we've got, a, we've got 55 professional clubs. You know, you guys were just talking about the, the lack of, of stadiums and facilities. Well, imagine a little island like Japan that has 55 professional clubs, promotion, relegation. Mm -hmm. We've got more than enough stadiums everywhere. Um, but, you know, the, the, the biggest really differentiation between all of these countries is culture, culture rules mm. and a strategy in the absence of culture will get you nowhere. And I can't help but think that a, a lot of countries do not get the culture piece right. And they spend so much money. They believe that it's about bringing the foreign expert from Europe to hold the hand and bring the methodologies on how to teach and coach. The other thing, too, is, is that if you look at coaches education. There's been false beliefs um, that have just been going around for just decades and decades. And, and what I what I what I want to what I want to point out about is that most of the coaches' education has come from Europe, originally from Germany, from England, from Holland, and most of the export of curricula has been based around uh, tactics, formation, systems, mm. and the belief was that there was no technical deficit. So this whole concept of just let them play, just roll the ball out, the ball's the teacher. Yeah, that works with kids that are already technically competent with the ball mm -hmm. at their feet. 
doesn't work with most. And that has not changed. When you look at the curriculums of most countries in the world, the first time that a child comes on the radar screen of a national body is between the ages of six and nine. They call it the discovery phase. And they mm -hmm. build the characteristics, clumsy, lacks motor skills, short attention span. So play fun games related to football. Well, again, like I say, when you look at those countries that have this endless amount of assembly line of, of players that are that are that are really, really wet, uh, good, they've won that battle at the entry level. They don't have better facilities. They don't have better coaching. They don't have better curriculum. They just have a foundation that's so strong. And the only way to make the best players better is by making the least developed players better. That's what closes that gap. And I can't help but think because I've worked for so many years in Australia. When I arrive in Australia and I get picked up, people know where to drive me to find the good kids. Everybody knows where those places are. Yeah. But the reality is you come to Japan, we'll take you around driving and you'll just see good kids everywhere because mm -hmm. the gap between yeah. the best and the least developed is very tiny. Whereas in Australia and in America, although it's closing, is like the Pacific Ocean. And until you mm. close that gap, you cannot expect to have a large elite player pool um, that you can select players for national team for. Yeah, for sure. I mean, just going back to Japan, um, if you go back 15 years, maybe, no, maybe the start of the, the J League, Japan weren't in World Cups. They weren't, they didn't have 55 professional football clubs. How did all that start? Um, because obviously there's been a, I suppose, a meteoric rise, I suppose you can call it, in Asian football, certainly in Asia, uh, around uh, the ja uh, the Japanese, the J-League, uh, the technical ability of, of some of those players that I was talking to you earlier on um, is, is phenomenal. Um, you know, we've got uh, uh, Kevin Muscat, who's now with uh, Yokohama. Um, you know, talk about infrastructure of clubs. The other Yokohama team that were playing yesterday had a fantastic little stadium. It wasn't, it wasn't 50,000 people there, but it was enough. To, to, to So what's been the big change within Japan over over that period of time? Sure. Well, first, Japan first qualified for their first World Cup was in 98. They just missed out. They should have gone to 94. So they really should have gone to that, that cycle, but they missed out. Um, but Japan football has been very, very, very popular here. And it's been a, there's been a very good uh, infrastructure. There's been an industrial league here. All of the J-League clubs are still owned by the same owners, of the old JFL, which is the Japan Football League. So they're owned by these massive Nissan, Yamaha, Hitachi, uh, Toyota, uh, Panasonic. These are the club, these are the, you've got massive organizations. The difference is, is that it became much more professional when the J League mm -hmm. was started in 1993. And the influx, we always had foreign players playing here, um, but then the influx of bringing that first wave of players that came, Zico, uh, Litbarski, uh, Stojkovic, uh, even Gary Lineker. I mean, that really supercharged the whole kind of, you know, brought it onto the, onto the scene even more. But Japan has been a very, very organized, especially at the federation level. Very, very extremely organized. Um, they put a lot of resources um, into development as well. Um, and I think it's just a good time. I mean, 1993 was almost the perfect storm. Because in 1993, the J-League was born. The, two, uh, the JFA threw their hat in the ring for wanting to be a 2002 World Cup sponsor. And then even on a personal level, that was the year that we launched the Curver uh, brand here in Japan. And today, although I'm not a part and I don't, I don't claim to represent Curver, but I was the original 
guy who, who introduced it to Japan back in 1993. Today, we have 120 of those schools are all over Japan wow. with over mm. 25,000 players are in it. Full-time staff of 200 coaches, about 200 part-timers. And some of the players that have come from that are most of the, a lot of the players are playing for the Japan national team. You've got the boy Minamino who plays for Liverpool. You've got the boy Kubo that plays over at, uh, at uh, Real Madrid who's lined out to Mallorca. We've got, uh, we've got players everywhere, especially on the women's side as well. So, and it's not just the schools. It's just that we were able, at least again, I'm speaking from a personal standpoint, I was casted on Japan's number one television show from 1998 every single weekday morning where I had a captive audience of 5 million households every day for 14 years. Mm -hmm. And all I did was I presented a one-minute, two-minute technical one-point lesson. That mm -hmm. coupled with getting having two full pages in Japan's number one comic book, 1.3 million copies per month, okay, for 14 years. And having done over 2,000. So football technical football skills are at the core at the entry level here in Japan. Yeah. And you see that because mm -hmm. you see the characteristics, everybody would agree, of Japanese players, whether it's on the men's or the women's side, it's, they're very good technically. Now, technique is not everything, of course, but without it, it's very hard to build the other pillars of the game. Um, and Japan, just we, we have just a conveyor belt of players. I, I hear about players who came from our school that I didn't even know were our players. I just heard about it. Yeah, the captain of Stuttgart, Endo, Wakaru. Mm -hmm. The captain, and he was at our schools for six years. I mean, I, so... You know, when, you, when you've got a lot of, you've got different organizations and, and they're moving in the same direction, the J-League, the JFA, and all the state associations who are in charge of grassroots development, we all play on the same, we all play from the same sheet of music, playing the same songs. So that's a very kind of unique characteristic of Japan. Now, Tom, you did speak a lot about the um, the corporate side of things and the business side of things. And when we talk about modern football, and I suppose when we talk about Japan and football, a lot of it is the business of football. Now, in the, in the early 90s, upon your retirement, you've, you've approached organisations such as Nestle and Fuji. Um, and Fuji was um, uh, in 1993 when you were um, launching the Curva program. Tell us a bit about how you went about approaching such massive organizations to get backing for, for some of your football programs. And, and was it something that you just did it out on a whim or did you have some sort of assistance or business coaching or, or how did you kind of, what was your vision when you approached these guys? Yeah, you know, it's, it's a great question and I call it kind of the football ecosystem. And that's probably where I've been able to kind of leverage the best because I, I understand that football ecosystem. I understand. I went to Nestle and I pitched the idea of doing this national football or soccer clinic program going around Japan, just doing these fun events. And that was back in 1988 and it started in 1989. I walked into a meeting with Nestle. Actually, I'll tell you, this is a great story. It's a great business story for anybody. I was doing an event back in those days. I couldn't speak any Japanese, whereas now I'm quite fluent. I do all everything in Japanese. I, I, I would basically go around and I would volunteer to coach for anybody that would listen to me back in those days. I just wanted to apply my skills. I just wanted to get out and just experiment. I was invited to an international school down in Kobe called the Canadian Academy. I went down there, long story short, mostly Western kids. I asked one kid out of the whole group. I said, hey, 
how long you been here in, J in Japan? A couple of years. What does your dad do? Oh, he works for Nestle. That was it. I got on a train, three hours, went back to Tokyo. Next day, I opened up a newspaper and I saw that Nestle, a brand, Milo, which is originated out of Australia, believe it or not, Australia was the one who, Australia Nestle created the Milo brand. And I saw that they were having this international tournament. I literally got the phone book and I called to the school and I, and back in those days, believe it or not, they would actually give you phone numbers to people. And I said, <laughs> hey, to the coach, I said to the coach, I said, listen, there was a kid that I asked, what does his dad do? And he said he worked for Nestle. I said, do you know who he is? Oh, yeah, that's the, the, the Yoast family. I called in the evening and the little kid answered the phone, this little 10-year-old. I said, hi, this is Tom Byer, blah, blah, blah. Hey, didn't you tell me your dad works for Nestle? He goes, yeah. I go, well, what does he do? He goes, he's the president. And so I phone. This is a true story. Alan Yost is the guy's name. He told me, he said to me, and the headquarters is in Kobe, but the Milo brand was being managed out of an office in Tokyo. Long story short, he gave me the name and I set up a meeting with the Japanese manager of the brand. I walked in with another guy and literally walked out of that meeting in 1988, having agreed to do 50, 50 events in Japan starting in 1989. I oh, had no really? idea how I was going to do that. And I walked <laughs> out. And then what I did was I basically found people who could do the things that I couldn't do. I couldn't speak good Japanese. I found like one of the only guys who was bilingual, spoke English, Japanese. He was a former player. I didn't have a network. So how can I go around and gather people? One of my buddies, former national team star, I brought him in. And then little did I know that that program would go for 10 years. And so I have a very strong... Uh, background in events, in doing events. I've done over 2,000 events for half a million kids in Japan here, right? So things just started to move along, and I started realizing that brands cared more about the quantity than the quality. They just did, they just mm -hmm. not numbers crunch. How much is it going to cost mm -hmm. this? Oh, how many people are going to come? And that's how it worked. It just, and it, back then, I had absolutely no philosophy, nothing. Not like I do now where I'm a technical coach and I've got the whole backing of, you know, the Curver brand and the work that I did. And then it went along there. And, and I pride myself because I've never, ever knocked on the door of a brand or a sponsor where I didn't wind up doing something with them. And I've worked with Volkswagen Group, their football ambassador for all of China, Adidas, AIA Insurance, Nestle, Coca-Cola, McDonald's. So you understand how to, you know, you understand how to, to convince. Where'd you park your Lamborghini? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I've, got, I've got a nice bicycle downstairs, though, but. Yeah. I mean, I, I, you know, I'd be a liar to say that I haven't done well. Right. And I've been very fortunate. But let me tell you this. It's a great point that you even say, though. I had an interview recently and, and someone asked me on the interview, said, like, what's one of your core values? Like, you know, for your business. And I said, and I thought about it. And it's true. I said, everything I've ever done in my football career that I got paid to do, I would have done for free. And that's exactly how I've gone into everything or every venture, or every partnership that I've ever gone into. When they asked me to do the TV show, if they told me they were going to pay me nothing, I would have done it. If they if they had asked if 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 Nestle had told me that they'll just pay for my travel expenses, so I could get in front of several hundred kids and do mm -hmm. these events, I would have done mm -hmm. that. So it's just you know when you find something that you're passionate about, you find something that you love. The money part comes afterwards. It does. I mean, we all obviously have to survive and feed ourselves. But I find that you know I was very fortunate to be able to find something that that I fell in love with, and you know it just keeps going.
Brilliant. Very good. Mate, have we got time for one more question or are we cut to a commercial break? We'll have a bit of a break yeah. One more question and we'll, then we'll go for a commercial break. But um, this is absolutely fantastic, um, riveting discussion. Steve, you had that question, yeah. didn't you? Uh, I'd like a loan of the powers of persuasion that you must have, Tom, as well, with those <laughs> meetings that you've conducted over the time. But we just wanted to talk about the football development pathways in Australia for those very young players at the start of their learning experience. We've got the skill acquisition program. We've had it in place for a, a fair few years now. Um, are, you, are you familiar with what we have in place here with our school acquisition program? And, and do you think it's um, a best fit situation for our young players here? Start to I'm end. very, very familiar with everything that's happening in Australia. And I've got, and, and I say that um, with sincerity, I have a lot of respect and love for, for Australian football because I have many, many close friends um, that work at the FA, work at the state associations, and they do a fantastic job. I don't think there's anything wrong with those schemes. What I think is the missing puzzle is, again, is that entry level of basically educating parents to be able to engage with the kids. I was lucky. When I wrote the, the book called Football Starts at Home, the, the, the shameless plug for my book, I was very lucky because when I just finished writing it, I was approached by a fellow by the name of Dr. John Rady. He's the foremost neuropsychiatrist from Harvard Medical School. Oh, and he had wow. heard about my work in China. And again, long story short, he asked to read the manuscript of my book. He's written a dozen books, bestsellers. He sells millions of books. Wow. He took an interest and he wound up writing the forward and the afterward for our book. Yeah. And what, he, what I learned from him was more than I've learned probably in my 30 years of all of the coaching uh, uh, courses and, and, and programs and licenses that I've done. And that was that role and link to parents and kids. And the whole genesis of this football starts at home. The reason the home is so important is because when you're, when you're playing with a little two, three, four, five-year-old in around your home, the home serves as a protective, safe environment away from ridicule. But here's the gift mm. to the parents and the coaches. It's the parents' understanding of their child's need for parental attention, for parental approval, and parental praise. And what that does is it creates a chemical electrical process in the kid, which is emotions. And when you can create an emotionally charged environment, that's where deep learning and long-term memory takes place. So literally, I inadvertently set my home up to be this powerful developmental tool, but I hadn't understood the science behind it until Dr. Rady came on the scene and I started to understand more and mm. more about it. And it fascinated me. And this is what we try to now instill in parents, what their role is and show them how they can participate in their kids' development to get them off to a flying head start before they cross over the line into organized play. Now, I've got, I have got one question, but we are going to wait until after because it does, it does link to parents and um, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that one after the break. Yeah, we're going to have a little bit of a break, and um, um, thanks for that, Tom. Now, we, this break is, in fact, um, Tom appearing on the program, an American program, the HBO program, and um, it doesn't go for too long, this interview, but it is an absolute brilliant one. It goes on for about a minute and a half, really important to, uh, to take into account. apprehensive in the beginning but when my boy would stand up or address the ball I would discourage him from kicking it but I encouraged him to just pull the ball back using the right foot the left foot and it wasn't really till a couple of years later when I had my second boy that I started to figure it out again connecting those dots you have these two boys who in essence become your guinea pigs yes 
And I started realizing now that at a very young age, when the football or soccer world has been telling us that skill acquisition happens from like nine, 10 and above, and I'm seeing that my two-year-old, my three-year-old can do things with a ball that nobody could imagine. Good, 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 good. The yeah. idea, Bayer says, is that soccer starts at home. And it starts when kids are barely out of diapers. We see the fruits of his test case while his son, Kaito, now 11, practices with his friends after school. He's definitely way above average for his age of his ball mastery. He's very confident on the ball. Um, he takes players on. Um, Bayer believes if parents do what he did, put a few little soccer balls in the house when their child is just learning to walk, could be a game changer in player development. You've got Messi, Ronaldo, Suarez, Neymar, but even in the United States, Landon Donovan, uh, Clint Dempsey, Christian Pulisic, when you read their stories, you'll see that basically soccer did start at home with those kids at, from a very, very young age. So you're looking at the trajectory of some of the greatest players in the world and saying, what do they all have in common? Yes, and for me, it's as clear as, as the nose on the end of my face that it's the, it's the parents that are the most important part for development. Welcome back to the Football Out West show. Um, it is a, a riveting discussion that we are having with our international guest, um, world-renowned football development coach, Tom Byer. Before the, before the break, um, Craig, you were about to uh, launch with the question, so it's over to you, mate. Yeah, and just listening to that again there. Um, as a football as a football, worldwide, Tom, this is not uh, uh, um, uh, aimed at anybody in Australia, but football-wide, having come from the UK, it would be no different. Are parents too pushy, too early for their son to be the next Ronaldo, Messi, Xavi, instead of actually helping them to become that person in the initial stages? Do we want them to be professional football players at six, seven years old, when the reality is I've never seen anybody sign a professional contract at six years old? Uh, I have conversations now with players who are 14, 15, wanting to be in the senior team of, a, of an MPL club. And I'm saying, well, you're 14 years old. I've not seen a player playing in that standard. So are we, are we, as parents, are we too pushy that way rather than trying to help them develop the core learning uh, skills first? Like you would with school, I suppose. You know, you'd, uh, you'd sit there with learning the alphabet at two, three, two years old. Isn't it the same? Yeah, I mean, in every country in the world, you're always going to find the extreme, right? You're going to find parents, and not just in football. It could be in tennis. It could be in any sport. So, yeah, of course. We're, and, and, you know, the whole thing is we're not talking about uh, 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 using football starts at home as a pathway to become a professional player. What we're trying to do is just show that in most of the more developed countries in the world, kids get off to a much more high uh, uh, flying head start. One of the problems you have in countries like America and Australia is, is that the retention rates are terrible. In America, 38.5% of kids who play football in America quit by the age of seven and another 50% quit by the age of 10. Massive drop off. And you've got alarming numbers like that, I would imagine, also in Australia. Now, here's the really interesting thing about our program. And this is another reason of why I'm working with several universities that are conducting research around our program. Stanford University, professors from Harvard, University of North Carolina, University of Michigan, University of Houston, because you know what ball mastery is actually teaching? Ball mastery is teaching a child 
the skill of how to pay attention. And when you teach a little two, three, four, five-year-old focused attention, you turn on and only then you turn on the powerful learning switch. Okay. So that has to, that has implications into cognitive, emotional, social, and physical skills. So we actually have research that's wrapped around what we're doing right now, where we're studying mm -hmm. hundreds and hundreds of little children and figuring out that these kids that are basically involved in these uh, football starts at home, this program with, with ball mastery, it makes them better thinkers. They're more focused. They have better concentration. They have less discipline. This is research, man. I mean, so this is fascinating. And this is the reason why these academic uh, institutions uh, have caught on to our program. So what we try to do is with families is we engage. We, we're much more stronger on the non-footballing side than we are on the footballing side. So, for example, here's another one. Ages from three to five is the most difficult time for most men to bond with a child. It's very awkward for them. They don't know what to do. They don't know how to handle a small child like that. So we, again, we use football as a tool. That's all we're doing. We're using football as a tool to shine a bright light. Here's another one. Getting, parents, getting yeah. parents active in football development. It's the same as education. If you see a child who does well academically, there's always a culture at home that values education. It's the same with football too. So there's a lot of these anecdotal things. So we have a very robust program in Houston. Houston uh, in, in Texas is the epicenter for football starts at home. The Houston Dynamo, the professional club, together with the mm -hmm. University of Houston. The University of Houston has a physical building and outside the door, it says Houston Dynamo slash soccer starts at home research laboratory. That's all they do is they're studying it. So we try to, it's a good question because that, that is a concern. But what we find is no, it's got many, 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 much more upside of getting a father and parents active with their children. And there's a feedback loop too, because what we're doing is we work in schools as well. So there's yeah, a yeah. there's a soccer starts at home at home. There's a program in the school, and that's a feedback loop. So what's happening here is getting uh, is getting reemphasized again here, and it's a feedback. So, I mean, there's so many things we could talk about here, and you can see I'm pretty passionate yeah. about this. But um, uh, absolutely, now Craig, I don't know if you can relate to this, but when Tom was talking about that father son bonding thing, like I can from personal experience relate to that. My little boy was about three, four. He was a mummy's boy, still is. But it wasn't until he actually started kicking a soccer ball and playing soccer that I actually felt that there was a connection starting to develop there. But um, Yossi I've never Quantrich. bonded with my son. <laughs> we, try and keep a, we try and keep it far away from one another <laughs> as we one can. One day, one day. Poor Morgan or poor Craig, I don't know. But Josip Lonchanich, who's, a, who's a, a renowned educator and a soccer coach here in the Western Suburbs, who is tuning in tonight, and he just uh, during the week was announced as called the United's under-19s head coach, and he's also the um, co-developer of Keylor Downs College's football program, very renowned, and he makes a really good point. He goes, brilliant guest. Um, as a parent, you can make it fun time with your children just playing with the ball. Get them to learn how to count every time they roll the ball back and forward. Teach them to spell letters with the ball and the hidden learning. Um, and that's coming from an educator, as you say, Tom. So we, we, we really underestimate the power of football, and we always say, I mean, now we're talking just about boys, but it doesn't matter, girls can be the same. Boys really love their balls from a young age. And um, and, and football being so simple, it's, it's, it's just such a simple concept. Roll the ball, kick the ball. Even if you can't walk, you, you know, kids are going to try and do that. 
um, incorporating the educational elements of it. Um, is enough being done in our schools or, you know, um, school soccer in schools and things like that? Um, and how can, whether it's the ALE clubs, whether it's private um, operators, how can this be expanded on to incorporate more of that educational element into it? Yes, that's a great point. And here's one of the things. I just did a presentation even for FIFA um, where I did a president, a football starts on press. And here's the reality. Football alone cannot stand on its own two feet. And what I mean is I can't go into a room of several hundred parents and on just football presentation alone, convince those parents to put their kids mm -hmm. into a football program. But I can get into a room with several hundred families because I've done it and I can convince them or I have a much, much better likelihood to convince them by talking about more of the off the ball football things like the cognitive, the emotional, the social. Here's the here's the beautiful thing about ball mastery. The part of the brain that's responsible for ball mastery is called the cerebellum. OK, the cerebellum was mostly thought to be uh, responsible for uh, motor skill functioning, balance and rhythm. The new neuroscience. OK, and don't take it from me. Take it from Harvard Medical School. Dr. Rady, who's written a dozen books. The new neuroscience shows that the cerebellum is responsible for much more. What is it responsible for? Thinking, remembering, which is memory, controlling emotions, single digit mathematics, reading. OK, so the ball mastery is literally helping the brain to work in a more cohesive manner. The feet are the furthest distance from the brain. We very rarely have any opportunities to build the neural pathways between the feet and the brain. So ball mastery literally helps to develop those other cognitive skills that I'm talking about. And that's the reason why in Houston, we have 17 school districts that have signed on to want to work with us in our program. It's the same thing what we're doing in other areas as well. So what I say is, is that we have to do a much, much better job of promoting football, not just on the football merits as well, but to show families how we can literally make their kids smarter. Because we have data now and research that actually shows this. So these are some things that are more innovative. We have to be more creative. We find that during the COVID-19 uh, lockdowns in America, kids sitting at home doing remote learning, when they get up, they move around, they do a little ball mastery, it wakes up the body and it also stimulates the brain. They sit down, they're better focused, they're more aligned. We just So this is a, a wonderful tool that we have now in football to be able to go and grow our game. We can increase the number of players, better level of technical ability at the entry level, better retention rates, and at the end, a bigger, larger elite player pool. There's no downside. It's a win-win all the way around. Very good. I think tomorrow I might have to go out and do a few Cruyff turns in between working from home to keep my mind <laughs> active so I don't fall asleep on the job, given we're in uh, lockdowns and things here as well in Australia. But um, just on the junior system in Japan, we are speaking off program earlier saying that it goes for something like 50 weeks of the year. Um, just a couple of questions around that. Uh, a lot of the thinking in Australia is that kids who play multiple sports early on often end up being the ones that make it to um, form out like our golden generation. A lot of those players supposedly played multiple sports growing up. Also, the cost for players to play 50 weeks a year in Japan, how does that compare to something we would see in Australia? Yeah, well, everything here is community-based. So we've got the three level. You've got the under-12s, 
So we'll talk about under 12, six to 12. Yeah. That's when you join. It's yeah. all community based. My two boys play right down. I'm, I'm literally pointing because my son's junior high school is right out the window right here. So he yeah. walks out the door and he's at the training field. My, the elementary school is right is uh, one block around the corner there. The cost barrier for getting in is about probably 100 US dollars per year. And you get a wow. uniform and you get three to four training sessions per week. Um, there's no fees to pay for the grounds because all the grounds are used by the schools. Yep. All of the, the organizations are usually nonprofit organizations. So there's really no cost barrier to get in. If Whoever wants to play can get in and play. Um, and that's because it's, again, it's, a, it's in the culture. And Japanese families accept that there's a culture in place that if your son or daughter joins, that they're going to be required to train three to four times a week. And that goes year, year round. That goes year mm -hmm. round. And, you know, the, gir the girls play with the boys here. It's funny because during the break, I was looking at a question here and someone put a question in here. Yeah, but Japan hasn't won a World Cup. Yes. Well, I beg, I beg to differ. On the women's side, they're the only <laughs> country have. in the world. They're the only country in the world that's won all three World Cup tournaments. No country in the world's ever done that. Yeah. And if you look at it, it's remarkable. You know why? We only have fifty thousand girls registered here in the entire country. Fifty thousand, yeah. and that's six sixty. But we've won them all, all three of them. So, again, um, low low cost barrier. Um, lots of facilities because the schools are used. Um, as that's where they play the games. There's, you know, they play on dirt fields um, mm -hmm. up until probably high school. High school is a little bit more, they have uh, more kind of artificial turf. But yeah, we've got in our national under 12 tournament, we have 8,000 teams that participate in that. Um, mm -hmm. It's huge. Uh, yeah. Then you go into junior high school, the high school tournament here, uh, you, it, the final for the high school tournament in January, usually about 60,000 people come to watch the final. So, I mean, it's wow. just a, it's, it's a different <laughs> world. Thing. Yeah. You've got, and I mean, are the kids just, playing any other sports as well in at the same time, or are they just playing football? Yeah. Okay. So on the organized side here, you basically, if you play football or you play baseball, you play that year round, but sure. it, it's a little misleading, right? I mean, you, if you're, if you're a first grader, second grader, third grader, you're probably playing twice a week and maybe on a weekend, one game, my kids played organized. They played football but they swim, they play basketball recreationally, they play ping pong, they ride bikes. Um, and then in school too, they have a, what's a word called bukatsu, where basically they'd play multi-sports. My boys, when he went to, my first boy, when he went to junior high school, he didn't play on the high school soccer team. He played on a club team, but because he didn't play on a club team in junior high, he's required to, to enter into what's called bukatsu, which means that every couple a couple times a week, he would be required to play multi-sports. They play even lacrosse. They would play baseball. They'd play basketball, volleyball, all kinds of things. But he played on his club team. And my kids always, like most kids, they gravitate to what they love and what they're best at. And my kids just happen to be good at football. So that's their main game. That's their main sport. Question here. Right. So, yeah, question here uh, from Paul. Um, he says, "What age do um, juniors transition from full size um, pitches uh, to full size pitches? Um, do they do they go still into that sort of 12, 13, 14 age on still on small small pitches, or how does it work?" Yeah. The, the, okay. So under twelve, um, it's supposed to be eight versus eight. They play on a smaller pitch. You go into junior high school. I mean, some of these junior high schools, it, it, it really, to be honest with you, 
depends on how big the ground is at the school. Some are smaller, some are bigger. Mm. Um, in high school, they'll play on a full-size field like, uh, you know, adults will play on. So it's pretty much like that. I mean, even in junior high, they play on a pretty large field, but they'll play 11 aside there. Um, but yeah, in, it, it, under the age of 12, it's eight versus eight. I mean, then 11 versus 11 onwards to the, uh, to the I, believe, I believe at least junior high. My specialty has always been under 12. Yeah. It's kind of, a, it's been a learning curve because my, I have a boy who is first year in high school and another boy who's first year in junior high. And trust me, those, uh, those groups are very, very divided. They're run by kind of different organizations and just everything. And you, you, you tend to specialize in one of those. My whole career has been under 12, 6 to 12. So I'm learning different things by going and watch my kids at, at, at junior high and play at the high school levels as well. But, Do they have academies there, Tom, at, at those well, early every, ages? Every J-League club has an academy. They all have professional From what academy. age does that start? That starts from the age of 10 and above. Okay. Yeah, so everything above. underneath that then is this, uh, the football starts at home yeah. philosophy, is it? But yeah. the, the, the thing is, the thing is, though, is that, you know, I mean, the, the clubs here, um, I mean, especially in high school, the high school still, they develop a lot of players that go into the J-League. It's not 50%, but I'd say it's 25 to 30% of players that go into the J-League still are coming from high schools. I mean, these high schools are brands. They're huge. They carry the big, big branded high schools carry at least 200 players on the team. And that's all they do. And I mean, unfortunately, sports and football trumps academia. I mean, those kids are there to play football. That's the that's mm -hmm. what they're there for to do. So there's this endless supply of footballers here. The average is just so strong if you watch a high school or youth team. I mean, technically, right? And that's why, you know, guys like Ange and Kevin to come over here to play, they must love it here because the, you know, you they're never at a loss, at least for the quality at the technical part, right? And obviously, if you've got really strong technical players, those yeah. are the players that are much more coachable, right? You can play, sure. you know, any system tactical formation is going to be dependent upon the quality of the players that are available, right? So Japan's just got this endless amount of players that are available constantly. Uh, we could talk about this all night, and hopefully, mate, we can get you on in a future episode of the Football Out West show. It would be absolutely fantastic. But where to now for people who are interested? You've got a um, you've got an online presentation with the Soccer Stars at Home coming up this week. Tell us a bit more about that, and also your book as well. That's available online um, via your website. So do tell us a little bit more about how more how people could find out more about this innovative program. I've actually just bought the book while we're on while we're while, while we're speaking. So uh... well, there's there's a couple here to unpack. So first of all, the um, the online that I'm doing, which is on the actually in our part of the world, it was really came from demand. I do lots of presentations, but mostly for professional clubs, for uh, associations, FAs, um, groups like that. This is actually the first time that I'm going to do a football starts at home or soccer starts at home online presentation that I normally do. But it's the first time I've opened it up to the public, whoever wants to get on. It's mainly focused on the American market, um, but we've got people from all over the world. Um, and we've got 350 people signed up in the first two days to do it. Um, it's going to be on the 30th of next week, the 30th, and it would be at 10 o'clock in the morning Australian time, 9 o'clock in the morning my time, and 8 o'clock in the evening in America. 
So that's why I'm doing that. I just only because I had it for demand. People are asking, well, you know, we don't, we don't, we'd like to see the presentation. So I'm doing that. Um, the book, um, you can buy the book at, it's a very long word. Soccer starts at home book.com. And um, that's where you can get right there. You guys are very, very professional. Very, I love the preparedness that you guys have come up with. <laughs> I gotta say, hey, I'm not just saying that to trust me. I do a lot of these. I do unbelievable amounts of interviews. You guys are doing unbelievable stuff, man. So yeah, so the book is here. Um, and yeah, and, and then, you know, if you want to really check something cool out, check out HoustonDynamo.com and then a slash. If you can type it in, bring it up. Soccer starts at home. So that's Houston Dynamo. There it is, man. And there is so much information there. Yeah. Um, there's like six different buttons. You've got over 20 videos, ball mastery videos. You've got a parent's checklist. You've got um, our school's program is on there. You've got an A to Z of what is the philosophy. It's all there, man. It's all there. Everything's there, free of charge. You just got to take time out to, to search and find it. Well, we've certainly done our, our homework. And in the comments section, there's a, there's a plethora of links there. Soccer starts at home, book.com. Um, it, it is $18 for a book. Now, I'm not sure, is that US dollars or Australian dollars? Either way, very good value for money. It, it is. It's, it's in US dollars. The only downside, unfortunately, is that the books get shipped from the States. We've been trying to figure out uh, for a while now how we could actually print it locally in Australia because I think it would be pretty popular, and we haven't figured that out. So if there's someone in the audience or any of you guys can come up with some kind of scheme, uh, let's have a talk. <laughs> Santino, my man, he's he's got a lot of American friends, and he's demanding to know he's uh, he's about to put on KO, so he's had enough of us, you reckon? But I'm sure. Uh, is kicking off now. Is that one of his ass? Yeah, yeah, absolutely, hundred percent. Tom, thank you so much. Um, absolutely, it has been an enthralling discussion. We really, really thank you so much for being a part of tonight's show, uh, gentlemen. Any last questions for our guest, Craig? First, first to you. No, um, just for me, we'll get the link and we'll pop the link up for the um, the the um, uh, forum that you're doing uh, at the yep. end of this week, uh, Tom. So anybody that wants to register, get on there. I think you you said in your in your post this week you've got well over 300 people on it now. Is that is that correct? Yeah, we've got about 350 signed up. I think we're pushing 400. And we can we can accommodate 500. Fantastic. So uh, get your uh, there's get a link your, popped um, up in the comment section. Yeah. Yeah, there we go. So it's already okay. in there. But uh, no, listen, listen, Tom. Thanks very much for coming on. Really appreciate um, appreciate your time. Um, although you did scare me earlier on the week when you did say it was six thirty in the morning, <laughs> and, I, and I'd wondered what I'd done. But we got out time. Twice, but really appreciate you coming on. I think it's a uh, it's fantastic to see how you know other people. You know, we all think as, as a coach, we all think we know it all. But the reality is we know very, very little. And the more that we can use other people's experiences, um, you know, around the world uh, to help our young kids to be the best that they can, uh, then uh, the, the more we should be doing of these things. So really appreciate your time this evening. Yeah, my, my, my pleasure. Good on you, Tom. All right. Thanks very much, Tom. Thanks, Tom. And hopefully we'll get you, uh, we'll get you back on again. And uh, very best of luck with, uh, with next week. That's uh, Tom Byers, who's um, yeah joined us all the way from Japan. Fantastic guest, guys! It was an absolute um, pleasure chat chatting to that man, and um, and I'm sure that our viewers will be will have appreciated that. But uh, 
Um, geez, we had so, had a really good show tonight, gents. Um, wow. <laughs> um, just like that, an hour and a half goes by. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It was, uh, but in, in a different, very different. You know, you, we talk about you know development, and I'm one of those coaches that spend a lot of time with that. You know, twelve to sixteen years age group, and the reality is, you know, <laughs> we're trying to teach technical things to those guys. When the reality is, it it it's it starts a lot earlier, and even in our SAP program, you know, it's uh, what is it nine to twelve years old, isn't it? The, the SAP probably SAP, should start. Probably yeah. should start earlier again, you know, if that's yeah. if that's what yeah. we're trying to achieve. So yeah, very very interesting uh, listen, and um, certainly got some uh, some fantastic ideas. So get yourself booked in on his uh, on his uh, on his forum for next week. Now this gentleman Tony Gregorovich, I just have to put his comment up there. Steve, you know him very well. Tony G, yeah. yeah, Tony G, and and Tony and I actually were involved in coaching a some yeah. a group of kids down at North Geelong from under sevens, but a lot of them were five year olds. Um, and and as I said, from personal experience, I know bonding with my little boy when he was mummy's boy and didn't want to have any of that kind of stuff. Watching him from a very young age, where the ball's up to about their knee, and you know at the time we were playing um, using. Um, uh, match uh, size three match balls as well, yeah. um, and just watching them develop it, that 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 love for the game where they they take and I'll never forget like uh, my and this is just personal experience how much of a, how much my boy loved football so much we actually we ended up going to a funeral the late Tam McCulloch down in Geelong who was very well renowned in football circles and I I had uh, my little boy with me and I actually came I said to him you know. What do you want to do? You, know, you can take something along with you. You know, it's probably going to be a little bit boring and blah, blah, blah. You can go along. What, what, what do you want to take? There's about three, four at the top. He took a soccer ball. Took a soccer ball. And, and the late Tam's widow uh, later made a comment how it, how it touched the family, that he was soccer was such a big, important part of his life. And there was this little boy turned up with his dad with a soccer ball. And I'll never forget that. That was just an amazing experience. But that's not an exception. There are so many kids like that develop a love for the game from such a young age so oh what a what a what a what a what a show tonight guys and i hope everyone out there got as much out of it as as us three did craig in the last words no i'm done i'm uh, i'm just, right. uh, i just logged myself <laughs> i just logged myself onto the uh onto this uh onto his call on uh, on thursday i think it is isn't it so yeah thursday uh, yeah, 10 yeah. o'clock our time so our perfect time yeah eastern gents yeah. have a lovely night we will catch up with you guys again next week seven o'clock on sunday football out west show continues and um hopefully we will have a, a, a george cross uh, themed episode on next week um, and I'm sure there's going to be a lot of news from now until then. And um, Steve, tomorrow night, Geelong Football Show, Geelong Region Soccer Show at 7pm. So we'll catch up with you then. We'll speak to you then. And uh, thanks, guys, for the show tonight. And thanks, everyone who tuned in. The comments have been fantastic. And uh, wish Brilliant. we could get to them all. But we really, really appreciate yep. it. And uh, look forward to uh, seeing you again this time next week. Good on you. Good night, folks. Good night.